Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number 13. After an engaging conversation about the evolution of patient experience last week, this week we will talk about the evolution of the student experience in higher education. Our guest today is the Dean of the College of Business at the California State University in Stanislaus, Dr. Tomas Gomez Arias. Prior to his role as Dean at Stanislaus State, Tomas was the Chief Diversity Officer at St. Mary's College of California, where he also served as a professor of marketing in global business and the associate dean for faculty and research at the School of Economics and Business Administration. Along with our co-host, Scott Lacey, associate dean for the Colleges of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, we will discuss how the cultural demographic shift is influencing higher education and how its diversity know-how can be a valuable asset for corporate America. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Tomas, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks to you, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. We're, we're, we're delighted. And, you know, to give our audience uh, an example of what makes you prepared to lead others and help others in today's age of personalization. Uh, you may recall, Tomas, that I recently asked you a question, and the question read like this. When and where do you find your most authentic self? Now, here's how Tomas replied. Listen carefully. I find my most authentic self in the midst of an honest, heated intellectual argument, one where we can work together to discover a better idea, a better solution, rather than trying to convince each other about the merits of our own positions. That dialogic meeting of the minds brings out the best and truest in me. Damas, why can't most people be their most authentic selves under these types of conditions? In other words, why do the forces of standardization in this case, feeling the need to assimilate limits progress rather than produces abundance. I, I think we, we spend too much time and effort uh, trying to convince others that we are right, that, that we have uh, some, some secret formula or some well-known formula that is going to work for everyone works for me and is going to work for you and is going to work for, for someone else, rather than thinking about what is it that really works for you, for me, and what is different that is going to work for us when we have to work together, when we have to live as, as a community. Uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm an academic, uh, so usually I think about uh, an academic of, uh, uh, of thinkers, a community of learners, uh, what is it going to what is going to work for us rather than trying to convince convince you that I'm right? Uh, because maybe I'm not. 
And definitely, I am not right about you. At best, I can be right about me, uh, because that's the experience I have, and, and that's the only person I can claim to know best. Well, wise response. But this also brings up some of the uh, limitations that standardization has brought into administration and, and leadership. And that is, if I win, you must lose. Mm-hmm. It's a, almost a, an environment of intense competition rather than one that invites uh, a healthy level of inclusivity, which now brings me to the second question that I, that I asked you. Now, listen to this, everyone, because uh, this also reveals the type of individual that Domas is. What problems do you enjoy solving for the most? Now, quoting Tomas's response, how can I increase happiness around me? Ultimately, this is what I'm passionate about. And most problems at their root are about barriers and enablers to happiness. I perform best when I face urgent and seemingly untractable problems that require a new approach and taking an uncommon kind of risk. Why do you believe, Domas, that most people are unhappy? Uh, you know, that, that's the trillion dollar question. Uh, why, why are people unhappy? Um, but I think it's a role to try to uh, find out what, what's in the way of, uh, of people's happiness. Uh, and uh, and it varies a lot from one individual to another. What really makes them happy, makes them excited, makes them their best uh, and, and perform at, uh, uh, at their best. And very often what makes us unhappy is in strange areas that we seldom look into. Uh, it's, 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 not, it's not the work, it's not, uh, it's not money uh, in, in most cases. It's something else. It's, uh, it's being fulfilled. It's their relationship with their families and their communities. It's uh, feeling stuck in, in, in many cases in a particular path that maybe it's the one that someone else defined for them or they feel mm-hmm. that society defined for them and they cannot express themselves and, and, and be their, their true self. You were asking earlier about uh, when, when someone is their, their authentic self. And I think very often people cannot be their, their authentic self or they don't feel that they are uh, able or allowed to, to be themselves and, uh, and really pursue what, you know, in, in, in some of our, uh, these country's foundational documents talk about the pursuit of happiness which I, I think it's a fantastic turn of, uh, of phrase from uh, over 200 years ago and thinking about the right not only to, to do what you want, but to think about what makes you happy. What, what... You know, it's, it's interesting, uh, Tomas. I've been you know, thinking about this, and, and we're going to pivot to Scott here in a moment because uh, he actually teaches a course on happiness at Fairfield University. But... Think about the situation that we're in right now. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, for the first time in, in modern history here in the United States, uh, when, co- when the pandemic, when COVID struck hard, uh, first time we've really been in any level of real adversity, something that we couldn't control. And what I've learned in this process, and again, this is just, my observations 
through a series of, of many phone calls is that um, I've learned that many people, um, they feel hopeless and helpless, not because they can't be, it's because they've never been asked to be. In, in other words, standardization has put uh, the individual in a position to uh, follow orders, uh, do what they're told. Uh, they're boxed in. And when this pandemic uh, started, and then, of course, the social unrest, which in many respects, you can say the, the offshoot of all these things are very much interconnected. Um, people were having trouble having an opinion or thinking of the, the actions that they can take to be part of the solution. Why? Because uh, directions that they've received from other people um, have almost stripped away their identity to the point where they don't have an opinion or they don't know how to act, that they need somebody to push them and to direct them. Uh, why am I sharing this? Is it, it seems to me that when that level of your heart and soul is taken out from under you, there's a lot to be unhappy about, especially when you add it onto something that is so uncertain and that is out of your control. So, uh, Scott, I'm going to pivot to you right now. I'd love for you to react to uh, what uh, Tomas said and also maybe some of the things I just shared. Yes, I think as soon as, Tomas, as soon as you started talking about the individuality of happiness or well-being, whatever we might, however we might want to, to, to coin the phrase, um, the thing that popped out in my mind in terms of this, the trouble of assuming that one person's recipe for happiness must therefore be happy. Come on, this makes me happy. Do this, you'll be happier. Um, and this is something you're talking about in your own leadership style as well. Um, but when I'm doing this anthropology of happiness class, one of my favorite days is when we look at the, the it's relatively recent, but it's been going on for a while, the, the World Happiness Report, right? Comes out every year in the spring. And what we see is a mixture, an, an assessment, a very widespread assessment of about 150 plus different nations. And we're going in there with a similar singular methodology on multiple levels to try to assess where are the happiest people in the world. And when we go ahead and look at that and look at the results, the students are always saying, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Look, war-torn countries or, you know, they, they're, they're making sense of why they're a sad or a less happy country. But then we make the students take a similar test to see where they sit as an individual in relation to this so-called global frame. And what most of them find is that either they're way over happy or way more under happy than they thought they were until they saw it put forth in a different way. So I'd like to do a mini world happiness report just with you and ask you a question because based on your experience in higher ed, you have been in many different countries, not just physically real countries, but also countries. For example, um, like an office of diversity versus a business school. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about this. In terms of leadership, and when you lead with this thought of well-being is the common sort of piece that binds all of your, or much of your, your, your strategy, how does that strategy change, or how has your strategy changed when you move to, say, an uh, office of diversity to a business school, or even to higher ed in the U.S. versus higher ed, say, in Spain or somewhere else? Well, I think one of... Uh... One of the things I'm trying to dig into is that element of individuality. Uh, 
One of the things we did at uh, St. Mary's when I was uh, chief diversity officer there, and it started before before I, I, I assumed the position, but we, we did a lot of work on it while I was there, uh, was trying to gather the voice of the community, gather the voice of the, of the individuals, have reporting systems uh, that would allow us to uh, uh, collect and, uh, and, and, and then disseminate the individual experiences uh, that people were going through, because it was so important. Uh, the, the ability to, to get that individual experience, uh, and, and then, of course, it will have to be anonymized in many cases, etc. But all those instances of, uh, sometimes it's just microaggressions, it's something small, uh, and this is something that so many people in, in, in the um, traditionally marginalized communities uh, have been talking about forever, and, and, and very often we don't listen. Look, it's, they're, they're the big thing that, uh, that everybody sees in the, um, in the newspapers and, and make headlines. But there's so many things, so many things that is day after day after day after day. It's sometimes hour after hour. It's not one person, it's one and another and another and another. Uh, and, and they make a difference. They make a huge difference in, in our lives. And being able to collect uh, uh, some, some of those and be able to act on certain patterns that appear was, uh, was really important. Uh, the same thing as, as a business deal. Uh, uh, now that I have been in this position for the last three years or so, uh, and, and at a very different institution, uh, is trying to look at what, what are the needs of the individual students and the communities that, uh, that we serve, rather than, than try to take a cookie-cutter approach to uh, okay, well, this, this is a very standardized curriculum, and, 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 and here it goes. Thinking about students, faculty, staff, what do they need? Um, what do we need to standardize what faculty members do in a class? Or, or should we actually encourage them to work to, the, to wherever are their, their own strengths and their own passion? Because um, mm -hmm. that's what they are going to perform the best, and, and the students are going to see it. They, they, they are going to... To notice it. Uh, well, when I interview candidates, uh, we are recruiting faculty, for example, and, uh, uh, and they are asking me about what are the research expectations uh, that, uh, that we have. And <laughs> Scott has that experience uh, uh, too. And, and uh, their eyes open when I tell them, you know, I want you to do your best research. I really do. Uh, and I, I don't care too much about three or four or five narrowly defined journals where you have to publish. I want you to do your best research. And if that means going or straying away from your core discipline, so be it. If that means collaborating with people outside your discipline, so be it. Mm. If that means publishing in outlets that I have seldom seen in my discipline because they work with someone else, so be it. But I want you to be your best research and what, may, what, what makes you tick, what, what you are really passionate about. Um, and the same things with students. Uh, I, 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 sometimes I talk to them and they, they ask me, uh, what first year students very often ask this, uh, what, what, what major should I choose? Uh, because my, my parents are, are telling me, well, think about accounting, you're going to get a job. And, and okay, what, what do you like? 
Well, I, I like English. I, I like writing. I like reading. Study English. Study literature. Do whatever you are passionate about. If you are passionate about it, you're going to be good at it because you will put the effort, you will put the, uh, uh, the emphasis on it, you will be able to dedicate the time, and you will be good. If, if you are good at whatever you are, you will be fine. You, you, will, find, you will find the job. Uh, I, I have an alum who, who ended up uh, working, uh, he, he translates uh, in, uh, classic Aramaic. Uh, and he, 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 he got a degree in business. He was very frustrated with it. Uh, but his passion was in, in classical Middle Eastern languages. Huh. Uh, and, and that's where, where he eventually grew. He, he got a master's degree. He went to Cambridge. He, he, that, that was his passion. So that's what I tell them. Follow your passion. What, what really makes you think. And you will be fine. If, if you are really good at it, you, you, you will be fine. You know, I, go ahead, Scott. Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. I have one follow up on that, just uh, from uh, you know, as a, a sort of middle level of uh, dean here, as opposed to a dean that's running a whole shop. Um, I can get it, and I get it as an individual, especially as somebody that's trying to help new faculty and students, and even student life, and all these awesome people that are around us in the university system, right? Trying to make the best of this experience for faculty, for staff, for students, for everyone. But while I can see, and I try to see the same exact ideas that you do, um, sometimes I find that it's very hard to, 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 uh, to actually activate that, that I can give these good words and make people feel good, but I sometimes see structural impediments to that. As somebody that's been doing this uh, for a bit longer, what, what have you done structurally to help make your institutions um, open to the idea that, yeah, you don't have to publish in those journals that everyone else has to publish in, and you can trust me because you are going to get promoted. You are going to have your job. What have you had to do? Have you had to change rank and tenure? Have you had to change admittance policies, um, criteria? Well, in, in, in our case, fortunately, even before I arrived, uh, the, the institution was really open to it. Uh, their um, criteria for, for promotion and, and tenure we're, we're relatively open, and we are accredited. We are an accredited business school, so, so we do everything. Uh, but it fits within our own definitions for accreditation. Uh, so we, we make sure that, uh, that we have that, and I have kept enforcing that, uh, reinforcing that, mm. uh, because I think it's, it's important. And, and, and that goes to the element of uh, not only the individual, uh, but the, the collective, the, the smaller communities where, where we operate. When you have, um, if, if you're alone in the community, if you're going against everybody else, you, do, you, are, you are in trouble. Uh, but that's where it's important to choose where you work and, and the people uh, that surround you. Uh, because, you know, when, when I came here, I, I came from a fantastic place. And Mary's College was a, a, a fantastic institution, a, a, a great mission, um, and a fantastic group of colleagues there. Um, but then here at Stan State, I have a group of colleagues who really get it, uh, who, who really understand uh, that uh, the focus on the student is so important, on the individuality of, uh, of the student, uh, uh, who understand uh, that it's so important to nurture our junior colleagues and, and taking them through the process of uh, 
uh, promotion, tenure and promotion, and make sure they get they get that that support, and they support policies uh, that also nurture that, uh, that that faculty with criteria that allow that freedom uh, yeah. to to work in the areas where where they really want, where they are really passionate, rather than trying to straitjacket uh, people into very, very narrow fields. So a couple of things, uh, Tomas, uh, just to, so we can get our audience understanding a little bit better of what it is that you're doing. Number one, how long has Stanislaus State been in existence? Uh, Stanislaus State is uh, 60, 60 year old uh, university. 60. And what are the demographics, student demographics? Uh, so, so um, for for those of you who are not familiar with uh, with California and and, and higher education, um, so uh, Stanislaus State or California State University Stanislaus—that's our full uh, our yeah. full name—is one of the campuses of the California State University system, yep. uh, which is one of the three higher education public systems in in California. There's the University of California system. Um, those are the doctoral institutions. Um, there's the uh, California State University system. Uh, this mm-hmm. is, these are the teaching institutions. Uh, and then there's the community college uh, system. Uh, and within the, the, the California State University system, we are placed in uh, one of the most disadvantaged areas of, uh, of California. When we think about California, we think about San Francisco and Los Angeles. We are in the Central Valley, um, mm-hmm. agricultural area, manufacturing area, um, uh, distribution uh, area far away from the coast. Uh, our student body is over 50% Hispanic. Um, uh, of our uh, students are the vast majority, over 70, 75% of our students are the first, genera- the first ones in their families, their first generation uh, mm-hmm. students, the first ones in their families to uh, have access to higher education. Um, most of them, uh, about two-thirds of our students are, uh, and then this is higher education lingo pel- eligible. Uh, these are the, 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 the students uh, uh, who are the, the poorest by, by federal standards. Uh, usually what we translate is these are the students who would have received uh, free lunches in, in elementary and, 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 and high school. That's the student body that, uh, that we work with and, and the student body that we are passionate about. Yeah, so, so let's talk a little bit about this because Clearly, your institution, Tomas, represents the cultural demographic shift in the United States. You know, again, what, it's what happens, let me define the term, it's what happens when large cultural segments of the population reach numbers sufficient enough to have a significant effect on what we do in how we act. If I can take the conversation back to where it started, everything about your leadership, the importance of authenticity, uh, the importance of being happy because you can be authentic. This is at the core of what your student population is looking for. I mean, this, the, the fact that you are leading and your team is leading in a way that's, uh, that aligns with the mindset and the need of a student body of Hispanics that represent over 50% 
uh, of the population, the student population. This is, I believe, where universities and colleges uh, want to go. They need to prepare themselves more for these for, for this demographic. How would you advise a university that historically has had a very small percentage of Hispanics uh, as part of their student body? And uh, that by default, whether they like it or not, here they come. Uh, what should they be doing now to prepare for them? Because the type of leadership that you are representing, I believe, is what's required in today's age of personalization. It's more about, it's less about what the institution thinks the student needs to learn and more about what the student hopes to learn. There is something that uh, I, I have been repeating for a number of years. Um, I, I'm originally from Spain, uh, you know, the old world and uh, uh, not, not that the Americas are not old, they have been. Um, but uh, there's a tradition of universities that go, goes back a thousand years or so. Right? I, I have worked at institutions and lectured institutions uh, that have foundational charters from the 1200s and the 1500s. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and is the, and we have gone continued in that in that tradition here in in the US and today in in the 21st century what we are seeing is that we are institutions that are absolutely fantastic um, but are prepared for a student that doesn't exist or that doesn't exist anymore right we are, we are prepared for an 18 year old boy uh, who can take four years out of his life to live the life of the mind and then move on to do something else. That student doesn't exist, or, or is a very small minority um, uh, in, 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 in higher education today. Uh, our students are all over the place. You were talking about demographic. You were talking about Hispanics, which is a, a growing demographic, but even within Hispanics, there's a huge diversity. Uh, you know, thinking about them as a single block and all just like each other, um, it's, it's, it's a mistake. They are very different from each other. Yeah. Uh, we, at most of our institutions, as Scott, I imagine that your institution is like, like mine, uh, we have more women than men among our, uh, uh, among our, our especially our undergraduate student body and, and, and many of our, our graduate. Uh, less and less of, of our students are full-time students. And even those that seem full-time students, they are not. They are, they are really not. They, they have families. They are working. Uh, at the very least part-time, many of them actually working full-time, some of them several jobs. Uh, they, they, they are maintaining their parents in many cases. They mm. don't have their parents paying for them uh, and, and, and to take four years for, for their education. They are, uh, they, they, they are thinking about pathways towards graduation uh, that don't necessarily fit the four-year bachelor's degree with the eight semesters where you just take course. They are different. They, that student that goes straight four years uh, dedicating themselves full-time to, to higher education, uh, that's an increasingly scarce student. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not the norm. 
not not anymore. For and for many of our institutions, it hasn't been the norm for for a while. But we still think in many ways in terms of that student. Uh, mm. We still in, in in many institutions in, uh, we still talk about freshmen, sophomore, junior, and seniors, uh, or, or first year, second, third, and fourth. Well, that that's not the path for for many for many students. First, second, third doesn't mean that much. I'm, I'm I'm progressing in in my in my study. Yeah, right. And I and I think that's the switch that we have to make in in higher education to think about students as starting a journey and going through a journey through higher education, where where they are developing professionally, personally, spiritually, uh, morally, ethically. Uh, uh, from a community perspective, um, and, and we are partners with them in in mm-hmm. that journey, right? And, and, I, and I think that's the change we need in higher education. Can I ask you about, you know, one of these possible changes? Um, and I'll make it quick. Is the major, like a, a, a student's major, undergraduate major, mm-hmm. um, is that dead? When we look forward, when we look at the transformation, because we're seeing this challenge, right, of, of the, the cultural demographic shift, we're seeing the challenge of COVID, and we're seeing a lot of challenges to higher ed that we need to think about. But when we think with the student-centered, the student-centered approach, I'm wondering if the college major is dead, because I see students coming in rushing to declare one just to make themselves feel better, only to find that they need to switch it six months later, and then it just sets off this thing. I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I think what is dead is a distinction between general education and major. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I, I, tell, I, I, tell us more about this. What, 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 what about that is distinct? Because that's, I think we're on the same page, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Exactly. So, so I, I, think, I think having a specific interest, uh, which can be a very narrow interest, is useful for the student coming in because it focuses their mind and their efforts. And it helps them discover maybe what they shouldn't be dedicating themselves to. And the earlier they discover that, uh, the better it's going to be for them. Mm. Uh, but I, I think in, in many institutions, and at least that has been my experience at, at many institutions that either I have worked in or, or, or I'm a very active reviewer within our accreditation agency. Uh, so I, I'm exposed to many other institutions. There's very often uh, a, a very stark distinction between general education, this is one thing, uh, and, and there's your major. And, and they are not fully integrated. Uh, you know, in, in, in our documents, we always say, well, uh, the, our bachelor degree is an integrated course of uh, education that, that includes elements of general education, yada, yada. But from the perspective of the students, and really from the perspective of most faculty and, uh, and even administrators, they are two different worlds. Uh, we, we could just split, okay, spend two years doing general education, get rid of it, and, and focus on your, on your major and have it at two different institutions. Uh, um, and, and probably we, we, could, we could be fine. Uh, but I think the richness is when they are really integrated, when they are part of that intellectual exploration, that intellectual journey, uh, mm-hmm. and that professional journey uh, that the student engages in uh, during their, their, their higher education time. Um, so and, and and that's where I think uh, we are missing that that connection. Why why is this ethnic studies course that uh, 
I have today, uh, right? Why, well, or that multicultural requirement or, 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 or the foreign language requirement? Well, I want to be an accountant or I want to be an engineer or I, I, I want to be a dancer. Why do I care? What does it have to do? It, it, it doesn't permeate and, and vice versa. Uh, how is this, um, I don't know, uh, why is this zoology course, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a zoology, so, all right, so I chose the wrong major to pronounce, <laughs> zoology major. Uh, you know, I'm taking this course in exotic species or, 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 or mammals or reptiles. Yeah. How does this make me a broadly educated individual? Uh, uh, how does this connect me not only to a very narrow passion that I have for uh, whatever uh, lizards, for example, how does this connect me to, to the wider world in, in which I live and helps me be uh, a mature, educated yes. citizen? Yeah, you, you know um, what, Tomas? Just, just really quick, I, I just wanted to let you know that you just took me back uh, to when I was in school at the university. And, you know, oftentimes um, I, I've been asked many, many times by young, uh, young professionals or people that are thinking about going to school and, you know, what are the benefits and what did you learn? And, and I can tell you this honestly. I was, a, my, my degree was in political science, international relations. And, um, uh, because my father told me that there's two things that you really need to know how to do well in life, the ability to write and the ability to speak. And that's actually what drove me to get that degree. But what I really learned, and by the way, it's helped me in my career, believe it or not, because of my international business experience. But what I really learned, and I think that this, I think this is still important is that it taught me how to do the things that I didn't enjoy doing. So when you talked about zoology, I can remember taking an astronomy class that I really wasn't interested in. I was horrible at biology. But you know what it did? It forced me to do something that I didn't enjoy doing. And that's life. In other words, in life, and I'm, in other words, I'm not disputing what you're saying. But I'm saying that in general, for me, my college experience was doing things I really didn't enjoy doing until it got into things that had to do with leadership. But it made me realize that to be a great leader, you have to learn how to do things that you don't enjoy doing, which brings me back to our conversation about what we're dealing with right now with COVID and social unrest. How how prepared is higher education leadership with this massive reset button that has taken our thinking about the 2034 or the 2024 plan and has pushed it into 2020? How ready are we, how ready are we to do the things that we don't like doing? How's that for a bridge? <laughs> That, that, that's a question, and, and, and there's lots of uh, higher education leadership. We have, uh, I, I, I don't know, including community colleges, we have about 4,000 institutions of higher education in, in, in this country. And, uh, uh, and quite a few of our presidents and, and provosts and, and our fellow deans uh, 
uh, they get it. They 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 understand it. Uh, and and they are working on on that on 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 working towards that transition to serving the students that we actually have. And some of some of our institutions have made more progress uh, than than others. Uh, um, there's a lot of inertia in in, in higher education, like in, in so many uh, other other institutions. Um, uh, but change is happening. Uh, it, it's never enough, and uh, and I, I'm one of those who gets very frustrated <laughs> sometimes. Um, uh, but but that cannot get in the way of making progress. Just because it's not enough change, that doesn't mean we have to fight that change. You know, let's let, let let's continue moving one step at a time. Um, uh, but we have visionary leadership in in some of our institutions of uh, of higher education, um, and. Uh, uh, I, you know, maybe I'm, I, can, I can talk about my uh, my my boss's boss. Uh, you know, uh, we we are an institution where all our cabinet, the president, all the VPs, they are all female. Now that's rare uh, at at uh, at an institution of of higher education in mm. uh, in this country, uh, but it's not the only one. Uh, we we are we are not the the only one. We have. Uh, Presidents that are coming from more and more diverse backgrounds. Uh, mm -hmm. We we used to have a certain path to the presidency. Right? Yeah. You, you were a professor, and eventually you would become a department chair, and you would become a dean, and then you become a provost, and you would become a president. We are having much more diverse presidents now. Uh, we have presidents who come from uh, student affairs, uh, from directly serving students rather than the more academic uh, and curricular side of, uh, of the house. Uh, we, we have uh, presidents that come from industry and, mm -hmm. and take a very different approach to, uh, to higher education and how it relates to the communities uh, mm -hmm. we serve. Uh, we have presidents uh, that, uh, and this is going to be really important over the next few years, who come from uh, from the CFO suite, from as, as, chief, as uh, chief financial officers and, and and vice presidents for for business and, and finance, and are yeah. able to have a different perspective in terms of our budgets, um, because ultimately strategic plans translate into budget, mm. uh, right? And uh, if, if we don't manage our resources uh, from that perspective, we are not going to get uh, anything anything done, and and and. This diversity of precedents that we have now, and, and that diversity is increasing. Uh, uh, let's uh, uh, and, and Scott and I, who come from the traditional route <laughs> as academics into into chairs, in, 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 into dean offices, uh, uh, we, we we may may see it as a strange process, uh, but I think it's a healthy one uh, for for our institutions when we have uh, that different kind of leadership uh, who can. Who can see our institutions from that different perspective? And it seems like we're talking about cognitive diversity here, right? That that it's not just about certain checkboxes of who we need to have in the president's seat, uh, and certain checkboxes of who we need to have around the table. Those are very important, and we need to think about that side of inclusivity. But what you're speaking to is something that I truly uh, value, and that is cognitive diversity, and that is people coming from all different types of backgrounds, and so. 
for, for the university to be able to, to, to transition and to move into uh, a phase at which we can break down traditional barriers to college and university leadership, I couldn't think of anything more exciting. So question, um, as these barriers break down in terms of the conventional path to the presidency, let alone a dean's office, um, can you tell me just crystal ball time, um, think 10 years from now as that's gotten a little bit more um, inter pervasive across higher ed, because I see it, I see it too. Uh, but 10 years from now, what are two ways that universities are different because of this cognitive diversity that's coming into leadership? Uh, I, I think, well, uh, I, I don't know where I put my crystal ball. I, I, I should look for it. I, I haven't used it in a while. Uh, but uh, I think we, we, are, we are going to see uh, two things, two, two changes. Uh, uh, one is um, uh, that the, the merging of the different aspects of the university experience in, in, in a different way. Um, right now, we have the curriculum on, on one side and very often all other experiences. Uh, on, on a different side. For residential campuses, that's resident, residential life. Uh, uh, it may be um, advising that can, can be uh, relatively separate from the curriculum. It, it tends to be quite separated. I think we are going to move towards a more integrated understanding of the university experience, of, of the college experience for, for, our, uh, for our students. Uh, I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the changes. Uh, and I think it's going to be an, an important one as, as it happens. And, and the fact that we have this different kind of leadership is going to help with, uh, with that. Um, the other one is a different kind of integration. Uh, and I don't know exactly what it's going to, to look like. As I said, my, my crystal ball is kind of blurred right now. But uh, uh, it is a different kind of integration between what is um, the degree and the post-degree and continuing education. Uh, uh, we, we are not four years or bachelor's degrees and you are done with, with your education. Uh, uh, we, as institutions of higher education, we have a lot to say about what happens beyond the bachelor's degree. Other sorts of education that mm. companies and other institutions, other organizations need as, as they need to uh, skill and reskill and upskill their their workforces uh, and our communities and societies it's, it's not only about employment it, it, it's about our communities uh, at large how can we elevate uh, the intellectual and cognitive uh, skills of the communities where, where that we serve right? so, and, so, and, so and the bachelor and other things the degree and the non-degree I, I think that's going to blur so how, how do you see higher education uh, integrating more with corporate America, with their communities? How is high, because what I'm hearing, and I've been, as I've been speaking to other deans from higher education, it's clear to me that higher education is no longer going to be viewed as a vertical, but now a horizontal. It touches many things that it should have been touching a long time ago. I mean, how can we better partner as, as higher education institutions with corporate America and the community? Uh, you just said the word, it's 
partnering is is getting in our relationship with them. Uh, some institutions are doing it very well. They, they have uh, they do a lot of in-house programming for for corporations and, and other institutions. They have large executive education programs and uh, open university programs and, yeah. and, and so on. Uh, more of us have to get engaged in, in that. Um, and, and I think one of the main barriers we, we have is for institutions, uh, to some extent like, like ours, uh, that haven't done that for, for, for forever. If, since, since our birth, we haven't really uh, done much about that. Uh, how can we show evidence of our value to those organizations and, and, and our institutions? How can we prove uh, what we can contribute to, right. uh, to them? Because for, for many of our institutions at the undergraduate level, the traditional degree programs, we, we have certain areas. Uh, uh, most education is really local. Uh, we, we talk about the college experience going uh, to a different state, but most people have their their college education within within commuting distance. Even if they live on campus, they sure. they, they come from seventy five miles around. Um, uh, uh, but at the when we are talking about the, those other educational levels and options and so on, uh, the, the communities have their choices. They, they, they can, and especially with the technology that that we have. Uh, uh, an organization that is next door to me can call Scott and say, "What can can you prepare something for me?" and and they can serve them. Uh, they they have no problem with that. So we 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 have to really justify uh, why we have to we have to be the ones uh, trusted to provide. Well, I'm, so I'm going to give you a tip right now. Here it is. Um, number one, corporate America. And when I say corporate America, I'm not just talking Fortune 500s businesses throughout uh, the country, businesses throughout California, uh, or even outside of California more so, um, how can Stanislaus be a talent pipeline for all these diverse populations that you have been essentially uh, raising and or partnering with uh, over the years that those students are at your institution? Companies want to know more about those populations. They want to know how to lead them. They want to know how to help give them a career path. Let me make one thing clear. When a diverse population graduates and is ready to go to corporate America, uh, the understanding level of these students and what they can distinctly bring to those businesses, if the baseline is zero, the understanding is at negative 20. You have an opportunity to help organizations through your own learnings as you're co-designing and partnering with these uh, student demographics is to help these organizations understand how to get them at baseline so that they can begin utilizing their distinct skills and traits and attributes immediately. I say this because this gap between negative 20 and zero, that's a major barrier to how these student populations that you've worked so hard you know, to help prepare for their futures, how that momentum becomes lost because the organizations that are trying to hire them, they don't know them as individuals. 
And what they force them to do that sets them back even more is to assimilate. So my point is you have a lot to offer as a case study and to and not just case study, but to teach these companies what they can begin valuing and seeing differently for the, especially these new generations that are more culturally and ethnically diverse than ever before. That's an opportunity for someone uh, like your institution, I would imagine, Tomas. Well, absolutely. There, there, there's a great opportunity to more than teach. I, I hate the word teaching. I, I, I really do. Uh, 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 when, once, uh, when I was writing my, my documentation to, for promotion tour for, for, uh, for tenure, uh, um, I, I, I scratched down the word uh, teaching philosophy. And, and, and I wrote learning philosophy. It doesn't matter what, what we teach. What, what matters is what people learn. That, that, that's what, what really. I'm sorry. Uh, how about if I said create awareness for them? <laughs> so what, what, what we, what, where we can serve a role is in helping institutions learn how diversity is important to them how working with these populations that they haven't really been exposed to, even if they have had a diversity of employees in their organization, they have been ignoring them in, in many cases. Uh, they, uh, they, they could have a large percentage of uh, African-American employees or Hispanic employees or Latino employees or Native American employees, and, and they are still a predominantly white institution. Uh, because institutionally, that, that's what they are. And, and they have to learn. We are talking about learning organizations. Uh, and, and many organizations, they, they have to learn how that is going to work for themselves. Not what I tell them that is, that is going to, to work. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just Thomas, and I'm just a dean in, 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 uh, uh, at a university in, in California. And yes, I have written a few papers here and there. And, um, but that doesn't matter. Uh, what, what matters to organizations is that they discover what is going to work for them. Why there is not only a moral, there's a moral argument uh, for the inclusion of uh, 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 all these populations that have been neglected uh, for, for so long, uh, but there's also a business proposition uh, for, for it. And we, we started talking about happiness. There is a happiness proposition. Uh, for like having everyone, and, and I mean everyone, I including and in the development of the organization, in, in making yeah. uh, the organization the very best and, and, and making it a, a learning and, and ultimately happy organization where people can contribute their, their best, right? Which uh, uh, is, is one of the definitions of social justice in the yeah. end. Uh, it's, it's creating... The, the situation, the environment where people can contribute their best to society is not where people can take the most from, from society, uh, but it's where situation where they can contribute their own best to, the, to society and to the community and to, to the organization where, uh, where they are. You know, Tomas, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And as we start to close and wrap this up, I, you know, part of what I'm, I'm taking away uh, from this is that, you know, how we move forward uh, needs to be different. And how we move forward is going uh, to require, as 
as Scott is a big fan of, a, a different level of interdependence and interconnectedness uh, between higher education, uh, its current model, uh, how the student helps uh, influence what it looks like in the immediate future, uh, but also how uh, higher education can play a greater role, a more broader role, uh, not just with uh, businesses, uh, but the role that it plays in its community, but also in uh, creating a, um, let's call it a, a rhythm for how we want that student experience to be, that it doesn't have to be four years. It took me five. Um, and the, the whole point is that, you know, everybody has a different path. And we have to respect that, especially with all the mass variances that we have in people. I mean, I'd love to say that I was a great student. I, I studied so hard, so hard. Uh, and, and I come to learn, as my dad told me, that what you learned how to do is to discipline yourself uh, to do the things, again, that you don't like doing. Um, so I appreciate the perspectives that you shared. Uh, Scott, did you have some closing comments before we, we give this back to Tomas for some closing remarks? I do. And it's, it's basically, I'm going to walk the Tomas walk right now, and I'm going to leave the institutional perspective behind and go to the individual. And I'd like to just underscore what I've learned today in terms of understanding your ethos as a leader and as a leader in higher ed. And I think that one of the, what my observation is, the, what your power source is your crystal ball that you had, that you shared with us. You said it's cloudy. And you almost in, in, intimated that that was a problem, but that's, that's your strength. Because, you know, we, we started off this conversation about happiness and the pursuit of happiness. It's not that those grand old documents guarantee a right to happiness. They guarantee the right to happiness, the pursuit to happiness, I should mm -hmm. say, right? And so when you have a cloudy crystal ball, that's me saying as a leader, you are trajectory focused, not destination focused, that you're about the journey, not the destination. And I'm not using those words to be sort of pop culture fun here. I'm literally saying that, that you're helping to organize minds and activities that are human and personalized because it's about the human experience moving through to something. The second we put all of our money and all of our interest and all of our mission on some external uh, uh, trajectory or external um, destination, whether that's for an institution or for a person or for the collective society, that's when we've lost because all we're going to do is realize that our pursuit of happiness is not going to, our happiness isn't going to happen because it's over there and it's going to take us a long time to get there. And so my dear friend, I just want to say thank you because you helped me understand the critical importance of a crystal ball that is cloudy because it gives you the space to understand the importance of the trajectory and the not unimportance, but the lesser importance of final destination. So thank you. Tomas? Thanks to you, Scott, and, and, and thanks to you, Glenn. And, and um, my students have, have heard me say this a million times. Um, no plan has ever gone according to plan. Uh, and, and I think what's, what's important is that when we think about the future, when we think about planning, when we think about education, um, it doesn't define the future. It gets you ready for that life journey that, that, that you are in. Uh, it allows you to be ready to face the changes that are going to happen uh, around you. Uh, 
the changes in demographics, the changes in cultural attitudes, the changes in your own life and perspective. Uh, if uh, 30 years ago someone had told me that I would be the dean of uh, business school in the California State University system in the Central Valley, uh, I would have asked them to tell me what they were smoking because it must have been really, really good. And, and, and I think many of us have that, that experience. Our, our life path has been incredibly different from what we planned, much less what someone else planned for us. Uh, you know, our, our families or our parents or, or our, uh, our mentors, uh, right? And I think that's really the role of, of education and, and of higher education in, in getting people ready to, for that journey uh, that is cloudy, that is unknown, that, you know, we, we don't know what we are going to do tomorrow, much less four years or, or, or 20 years from today. Uh, but, but we get ready for that process. Well, Tomas, I, again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, as I always say, when I close the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence has quit. Keep pushing, Tomas. We need your leadership. Thank you so very much for being on the show today. Thanks to you, Glenn. Thank you, man. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.